This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. Each week, you'll hear compelling conversations from events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. This episode features Judith Roden, president of the Rockefeller Foundation, discussing her latest book, The Resilience Dividend, Being Strong in a World Where Things Go Wrong. She joined the Institute's Walter Isaacson for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series, a regular event at the Institute presenting conversations with notable authors. Roden has been president of the Rockefeller Foundation since 2005. She was previously president of the University of Pennsylvania and provost of Yale University. Roden was the first woman to lead an Ivy League institution and the first woman to serve as the Rockefeller Foundation's president in its nearly 100-year history. Isaacson is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute and has authored biographies of Steve Jobs, Albert Einstein, and Benjamin Franklin. Most recently, he wrote The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created the Digital Revolution. Here are Walter Isaacson and Judith Roden. All right. Welcome, everybody. I'm Walter Isaacson. It's my great and good pleasure to have Judith Roden with us, somebody who's been an inspiration, a moral uh, leader, and also, if I may say, a friend. Um, years ago, when New Orleans happened, 10 years ago, when the levees broke, uh, one of the first things I did when I was vice chair of the Louisiana Recovery Authority is went to Judith partly because she knew a lot about urban areas, having been president of the University of Pennsylvania. And secondly, as the head of the Rockefeller, she was one of those people who didn't get all mired in bureaucracy. She said, let's cut through things and do it. So she helped create the planning process in a really messy situation there. And so let me start, if I may, with uh, both saying thank you. Thank you for being here, and thank you for all you do. And ask you to say, how did that start your thinking on resilience? Well, thank you, Walter. It's great to be here. And I just want to acknowledge you because you brought me into this work, really, and asking us to get integrated into uh, the New Orleans messiness. And I want to acknowledge Hank Ovink, who has been mm -hmm. here and on loan from the Dutch government to help the New York region recover from Sandy and has been a, an amazing mentor to all of us in the US on, on how to think about resilience in, in a way that allows us to uh, live with water instead of trying to figure out how to pipe and pump and pave over it. So. Um, the New Orleans journey was really stage three, I think, for my evolution and resilience. I am a psychologist, and I was always interested in my own work on how people cope with adversity. Why do some people seem to bounce back and do better, and other people seem to be knocked down and buffeted by every kind of adverse event? And the good news is what I learned from this research is that although it's talked about as if resilience is an inherent trait, it isn't a inherited characteristic. It really is a skill. It can be learned. It can be taught. It can be transferred. And therefore, an individual, an organization, a city can learn to develop the characteristics that will make them more resilient. And we certainly tried to develop a resilient community around Penn when I was president of West Philadelphia. In West Philadelphia, when I was president of Penn. Um, I felt like I was president of West Philadelphia, I'll tell you. You were certainly oh, the mayor. Over and over again. 
My husband said when I left Philadelphia, I had the most kissed cheek in Philadelphia. <laughs> and that was from being out in the community. And that is what I learned from that work, that building resilience is a bottom-up process as well as a top-down process. It's about community development, community cohesion. The, the people who rebound faster from any kind of crisis or stress live in communities where there's more cohesion and more trust. So that was sort of lesson two. And lesson three was certainly New Orleans. New Orleans had so little capacity mm -hmm. um, to uh, react to the crisis. And although we talk about it as when the levees broke, um, that was the trigger, but it wasn't really the problem. Mm -hmm. The problem was weak governance, weak institutions, lack of economic capacity, um, inequality as the leading edge of what we've seen in so many other places. And so they had a hard time initially recovering from that first blow. But they are an amazing story now that I hope we get mm -hmm. into, a story of real revitalization. Well, in the Resilience Dividend, the new book, which is obviously for sale from a <laughs> friends at Politics and Prose, and you will be signing, I hope. I hope. Um, uh, you talk about, as you just said, the notion of the community and having community cohesion being almost like the straw when you make bricks. You have to make, you know, right. can't have bricks without straw that holds things together. And in some ways, the comeback of New Orleans, uh, for better or worse, was kind of community-based because there was no centralized um, governance structures for a while. Uh, that's absolutely right. You know, everywhere, the communities that rebound more effectively are those that had more trust, that had more cohesion. You know, often we think about, um, we talk about first responder networks as being the officials, the police, the firemen. But in a crisis, often the first responders are your neighbors. They're the closest. You're often cut off from the formal elements of, of support uh, for some time, particularly if it's, a, if it's a flood or a hurricane or an earthquake. And so how neighbors know each other, how they feel about each other, what they're willing to do for one another is a key feature in making a community and therefore a city more resilient. Uh, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal today about San Francisco, which is one of the cities that we've been working with and featured uh, in the book. And they're talking about the community resilience officers that are being built through our 100 Resilient Cities Initiative where uh, San Francisco is actually formalizing what usually happens informally, which is each neighborhood is actually electing or appointing a community resilience officer, and they're working together to plan and prepare. And they're planning, and this is a key feature of building resilience, not for the last disaster, but for any disaster. So a key element that I try to get to in the book, and it's so important in New Orleans and, and other stories, is that often we do our preparation looking in the rearview mirror. And we don't know what the next thing is that's going to hit us. So I had the privilege of chairing for Governor Cuomo the uh, Sandy Recovery Commission for New York State. And one of the first things we found was that most of the businesses in New York City had put their generators in the basement because after 9-11, they expected the next shock was going to come from Maybe. the air. And of course, they all got flooded in Sandy. So part of this resilience narrative 
is that if you think about preparing for any crisis, you will be better prepared for every crisis. Tell me more about the Resilient Cities Initiative of Rockefeller. Um, well, as a result of the work in New Orleans and then uh, additional work that we did building an Asian Cities Resilience Network, uh, on our centennial, which was last year, we launched a global challenge called 100 Resilient Cities. And I tell the stories in the book of some of the most compelling cities and applications. But even surprising to us, last year we, we decided to take them in three cohorts so that we could really um, work most effectively with them. And so last year we picked 33. We had 400 applications from six continents. This year we'll announce the next 38 uh, in uh, uh, Singapore on December 3rd. And we had another 400 applications. And they ranged from unbelievable cities, Tehran, Ramallah, to Mandalay, to Quito, to San Francisco. It's been an extraordinary journey to see these cities and what they've done. And one of the first cohort of cities was Christchurch, New Zealand, mm -hmm. which many of you will remember in uh, 11 and 12 was virtually leveled by first uh, earthquakes and then the aftershocks, which were almost worse. And so they have a very energetic coalition of community leaders and the mayor and city officials and the business community. And they're working together to figure out how to rebuild. And they have so adopted this idea of resilience, which is not only your planning and preparation, but to make sure that when you rebuild, when you recover, you're building back better, not just the same way, which often means rebuilding differently. Um, we all want to sort of get things back to normal, but normal may not be the most resilient. And so changing that framework. So Christchurch is doing all of the kind of land use planning you'd expect and economic development you'd expect. But they've been using a participatory community-based process, which Porto Alegre Brazil invented on participatory budgeting. And they're using it to get all of their citizens involved in how they're going to set up their voting districts, because they've been leveled, and so they have to redeploy everything. And so as a result of their community-based processes, they've decided to have their voting districts all be as diverse as is possible. And the mayor called me and she said, I hope you won't be insulted to hear that one of our citizens said, in other words, we don't want to be the United States. Right, and you, um, <laughs> it's an important lesson because our voting districts have become non-diverse by both gerrymandering and by what were well-intentioned public policies like the Voting Rights Act. You met with 26 members of Congress right. this morning as part of Dan Glickman's Right there, congressional program, Republicans as well as Democrats. Do they see that notion of having cohesive communities uh, that are diverse as something that is in their interest, or are they going to always fight having uh, that type of voting? We actually didn't have that part of the conversation. I was trying to help them to understand this notion of the resilience dividend, mm -hmm. which is really for them the concept of how do you get more bang for the taxpayer buck? If we're going to make the investment anyway, let's make sure that we do it resiliently. So take, for example, an example I used with them this morning. They will any, anyway be reauthorizing the, reauthorizing the transportation 
um, and Highway Act, there are more or less resilient ways to build a bridge. There are more or mm -hmm. less resilient ways to build a highway. So we now have technology innovation with paving materials that allow you uh, the water to be absorbed more quickly and released more slowly. It's no more expensive if you're using a resilience framework, do that. We can 3D print the pilings on piers and transit bridges so that they, ba uh, that be they bend with wave action mm. rather than breaking. Bend, not break. Flexibility, adaptability is a resilience characteristic. Not only are they no more expensive, they are 10% of the cost of the standard wow. pier construction that we are doing. They're also a great metaphor for it's the resilience. It's a great metaphor. So the question is, how do you keep getting more bang for the buck? What I did say to them is there's you know, Republican and Democratic communities all over the United States that have been hit by disasters. And this is not only about um, hurricanes or tornadoes or floods. This is also about economic shocks, about civil unrest, about any kind of crisis. And as mayors all over the country know and say, there's no Republican or Democratic way to pick up the garbage. Mm -hmm. So the more local the elected official, the more they get this idea, which is why working with cities has been so compelling to us. Um, explain the Stafford Act and how you would change it. So the Stafford Act is usually um, invoked after there's a natural, usually natural disaster, but um, most disasters in the United States. And it requires the agencies to fund building back the way it was. So for example, in um, Vermont in 2011, there was massive rainfall for two days and terrible flooding and bridges and roads were washed out. And the state rebuilt with culverts around the rivers that would make them more resilient, make it stronger to whatever came next. FEMA cannot reimburse them because they did not build it back as it was built before. And this is over and over again in a lot of the federal legislation. So I said, change the Stafford Act. We talked about changing national flood insurance. After Sandy, they voted and then they unvoted. Um, and so they're just, our flood insurance program is distorting the markets because we know what the risks are. And we keep backtracking from asking people who live in the flood prone areas to buy insurance that is calculated on a risk based as we would do your car insurance mm -hmm. or whatever, or your health, no, no, no longer health insurance, but your car insurance. So um, there are private markets. We see the reinsurance market working really effectively all over the world. It's not working in the United States. So since 2001, FEMA has been in hock to the US government just for the federal flood insurance program, $24 billion. We could buy insurance and pass that off to the private markets, but we don't have the right risk calculations. We could means test people and so give vouchers, have the right level of insurance coverage and the right amount to cover it, and then give vouchers to those who can't afford it based on means testing and give low interest loans for mitigation strategies. We Rockefeller, and this is a 
story I tell in the book, working in Da Nang, Vietnam, gave microcredit loans to poor families who lived in some of the most compromised uh, storm and hurricane-prone areas to just do some mitigation on their floors so they wouldn't flood, and very simple mitigation on their roofs so the roofs wouldn't blow off. They were the only households uh, along the entire coast of Vietnam in last year's typhoon that withstood it. $24 in US dollars is all it costs mm -hmm. per household. We are, sp in the last two years, the US spent $150 billion on disaster recovery relief just in the US. That's $400 a household. Imagine if we invested $400 a household on making each household more resilient rather than after the fact, disaster recovery and relief. When in the crisis moment, we are not, we're thinking viscerally rather than in a way that is prepared. One of the congressmen said this morning, who, who was that day? Oh, it's off the record. One of the congressmen <laughs> said this morning, um, our federal recovery program is run by Air Force One. A disaster happens, the president flies over, and buckets of money drop out from the back of the airplane. That is probably not a good way <laughs> to run a federal program. You know, in your answer just now, and also in your book, you say there are ways we should partner with business better and learn from business better in resilience. Why don't you expand on that a little? Um, a wonderful example is IKEA, and mm. we saw them in, uh, in the post-Sandy period. They build all their buildings now on pilings, and the garages are on the first and second floors, no matter where they are in the world. And then the showrooms are on the next floor, and then the warehouses on the top, instead of the other way around. And so after Sandy hit, they were the only business standing for about a week hmm. in the Red Hook area of Brooklyn. They became the sort of community development center. It's where food was given out, where emergency supplies were given water and medical supplies. And I went back a year later, and I looked at their sales. And they've become a community resource. The community loves them. So their business practice made them a critical part of mm -hmm. the community when often Communities reject the big box, you know, right. multi-site brand, but they integrated through their planning into the community. A different example, um, many cities in India were vying for a new operations center that Deutsche Bank was looking to locate. Pune won because Deutsche Bank just, uh, looked at all of their integrated planning how across all their operations they integrated, how connected they were to the communities um, within the city. And they chose Pune because they were the most resilient city over bigger and richer Indian cities. So businesses get this. They're looking for it. Um, and they're looking for it in the places they locate and in their own kinds of investment decisions. We also see, and I talk about a fun one in the book, catastrophic catastrophic places where businesses didn't get it. So some of you will remember the debacle that Lululemon had around their very sheer yoga pants mm. a few years ago. Well, and they lost $2 billion of market cap, had lots of lawsuits. 
The problem for them was that they relied on a single supplier of a single textile, Luan, mm. which was the part that made their yoga pants, the Lululemon whatever. Um, and that ignores a key feature of building resilience, which is building redundancy into your supply chain, building redundancy into your capacity as an individual, building redundancy in cities, and building redundancy into your supply chains. 81% of global companies now say their largest vulnerability is their global supply chain. In your book, uh, you take Christchurch, New Zealand, mm -hmm. as you mentioned earlier. Would you compare and contrast the lessons of Christchurch to Sandy? Um, well, Christchurch was leveled. I think in terms of Sandy, um, we are trying to rebuild, recover in a more resilient way. I do not think pre-Sandy that um, New York had the same kind of preparedness that we see, for example, in both San Francisco and Boston. So if I could just sure. compare Boston to New York in terms of planning, um, I think you'll get it. Boston, for the last six or seven years, has been integrating and rehearsing, doing preparedness mm. exercises for anything, whether it's civil unrest or terrorism or a huge nor'easter or hurricane. And so they have all of their units within government and all of the police and first responder units, medical, utilities, communications, media writ large, rehearse together. So they really know who's on first. They had already decided if there were any disaster, regardless of what it was, the FBI was going to be the operative controlling agency. They had already decided no matter what the disaster or emergency was, Governor Patrick was going to be the one who communicated with the general public. They used every public event they had to rehearse. Fourth of July celebrations, parades when a winning sports team. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was amazing. And so the Boston Marathon bombings occur. Within 18 minutes, anyone who was hurt was in a hospital because they knew who mm -hmm. was doing what. They didn't have to stop and think afterwards. They didn't have to figure the anything out. The were absolutely prepared to totally get it in. Prepared. Was prepared. Totally, and they didn't know what the it was going to be. They were prepared for any it because they knew who was on first. Hmm. Um, that's also a contrast to New Orleans sure. when it got hit. So let us, I'm wearing my New Orleans uh, tie for you today with the fleur de lis. Uh, but tell me about that process when nobody was in charge and how it played out. So nobody was in charge, Walter, you're right. And so the mayor was nowhere to be seen. Um, the responders did not have really any control plan or any source of control. We know the failures of the hospitals. The Sherry Fink book on the five days at Memor Memorial really told that story um, brilliantly. The one entity, and this is such a great resilience story, that saved most of the people was the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard came in flew in, drove in, trained in from everywhere around the country. And the reason that they were most effective is all Coast Guard, no matter where they're from in the United States, are trained to only do four things, and they're the same four things. Use situational awareness, so assess the situation quickly, 
they all have protocols on how you build, put a team together quickly and who's in charge of that team. They all have protocols that say how communication should occur with the general citizens. And then they all debrief every day. And so it didn't matter whether it was somebody coming from El Paso or Cape Cod or whatever. They saved all the people. 90% of the people got off the roofs came because of the Coast Guard. So that's now, that is a lack of preparedness. In the immediate aftermath, what you and I saw and what you were kind enough to bring us into, really, because it was such an amazing experience for us. I mean, Walter and I would spend a lot of time talking about, OK, who's calling the governor today? Or <laughs> is it your turn to call the mayor? Um, so this is not what a typical foundation does. At least, we're not a community foundation. So we were really on the ground. Um, and in their immediate recovery, they did it very poorly. There was an immediate impulse to recover the same, build back as it was before. The communities were demanding it. Um, nobody knew who was in control. But the story 10 years later is such a different one. They have revitalized. So you know it's trite to say a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, except it's true. So how you adapt and grow after a blow is part of what resilience is all about. They, as you remember, took over their school system entirely, their public school system, um, as a response to the crisis. They rebuilt their economy in a way that was much more diverse, much more based on entrepreneurship and innovation. They rebuilt their communities, not putting everything back the way it was or everyone back the same. Something that we learned and implemented post-Sandy. And it's a hard political thing to do. But with Governor Cuomo and Governor Christie agreeing, um, we used the most flexible of the federal recovery funds. And there weren't many that were flexible initially. Um, to buy out the 500 homeowners who were on the most flood-prone, most vulnerable areas. And those coastal lands have now been rebuilt as coastal berms and wetland uh, recreation centers and storm buffers and oyster reef uh, ecology restoration centers. So Staten Island, for example, the south part of Staten Island used to be called Oyster Town because there was an oyster economy there. The Storm barriers, instead of being concrete barriers around uh, Staten Island, are going to be natural earthen buffers that ha will attract, uh, like coral reefs, will attract yeah. oysters, will attract other fish. Mm. And they built into this student education programs about the environment and ecology, community management programs so that communities feel responsible. Three wins for one investment. That's what I mean by the resilience dividend. Mm -hmm. And Mary Landrieu, our senator, was fighting the Stafford Act each step of the way yeah. so that if you rebuilt a school, you didn't have to rebuild a bad school. You could rebuild in a new way of doing it. And she was very effective at she pushing was. that. Um, I'll give a shout out to your husband, Paul, who I think was dean of law at Tulane University in a previous century. Um, <laughs> And you, of course, were president of the <laughs> University of Pennsylvania. One of the engines bringing New Orleans back, in fact, the major engine initially, was Tulane University Definitely. and Scott Cowan. What role does a university have to play? You've been on both sides of this in uh, creating resilience in a city. Um, 
I think this was the lesson that I learned at Penn. You know, in the United States, our urban, what we call eds and meds, are often among the largest employers in any city in which they're located. And unintentionally, as they have expanded uh, over the years, needing more space and the like, they have often degraded the neighborhoods around them. And certainly that was true for the University of Pennsylvania um, and many other ur urban institutions. And so how you recapture these anchor institutions to be engines of community development, of community access, of building resilience in their communities. At Penn, when I was president, we developed a Buy West Philadelphia First program. So we owned five hospitals. We were sending all our hospital laundries out wherever they did laundry all over Philadelphia and New Jersey. Instead, we invested in a community-based West Philadelphia laundry to take first all of our hospital laundry, but they are now the largest laundry in Philadelphia employing mm -hmm. only West Philadelphia residents. So a university that is accessing all those goods and services has amazing capacity to build the economic resilience of the neighborhood and then the city around them. And it I, also builds the trust that totally. you talked about of neighbors forming a community that would be resilient because you all trust each other Exactly. More. I mean, it was very ugly going back to Penn. I'm a native Philadelphian. I'm a product of the Philadelphia schools. And it was shocking to me how much they hated us. And so we want to build that kind of trust between these great institutions and our neighbors because it makes us better neighbors. Now, how can we train our students to be civically engaged if we are not demonstrating civic engagement and responsibility as great institutions. Should um, universities train students better to be more civically engaged? Absolutely. And also to understand these programs. You mentioned Tulane. Tulane now has the only resilience master's program in the country because they learned the lesson the hard way. And it's a very interesting program that uh, includes land use planning, architecture, engineering, community development. And we want and to see service, more of that. By the way. And service, exactly. Um, you, uh, a couple of tougher questions. You um, focus on cities all the time, but the resilience we're going to need involves uh, rural areas, wetlands, everything else. Why focus on cities? Um, we are working in rural areas in, in two ways. As you know, we are in the Louisiana coastal, yeah. coastal um, Mississippi recovery program, and we are in several of those around the United States. But the truth is that in most countries in the world, and certainly in the United States, the largest populations live in cities. It's 80% of our population and 90% of our economy. That's true in virtually all of the developed world. And in the next 50 years, it's going to be even more true of the developing world. So for me, the idea is that if crisis is becoming the new normal, and what is creating these waves of challenges, and this is the, pre the premise in the book, is the converging forces of urbanization, climate change, and global interconnectedness, then cities are ground zero. So it's just a more 
effective way to deploy resources to impact more people and to change minds more quickly about taking this resilience framework. But we, we have one other ambition that is not so urban, and that is how development aid is used, because often development aid is expended more in the non-urban areas um, for the developing world than in the urban areas. And we've just launched a partnership with USAID and the Swedish aid agency, CEDA, a very large um, multi-million dollar project to really change the development framework from just building to building through a resilience lens. Because if we're losing all of this development aid to crisis, why not build in the first place in these rural areas? And so we've picked the three rural regions in the world that are the most, they have cities, but it's the rural areas that have been the most vulnerable over the last 10 years to show that this can work. The Sahel and the Horn in Africa, which is drought and flooding, and then the coast of South Asia, which is just hit over and over again by typhoons and monsoons. Mm -hmm. And we figure if we can change the way development aid is given there, it can work anywhere. My last question before I open it up, so please be thinking of questions, is in your book you pick uh, just a whole number of wonderful examples that are woven together based on broader lessons, cities from all over, Africa, Asia. Is there one particular city that, particular, that stood out for you? Medellin, I think. Um, and let me describe why. So far I've talked about shocks, hurricanes, typhoons, and the like. Medellin was experiencing not a, an acute shock, but a chronic stressor, 20 years of being the drug capital of the world, 20 years of crime and homicide that they were confronting in the way we traditionally confront it, with military and policing, and it was getting worse and worse. They took a completely different approach, and they are a prototype of how you can think about resilience building if you change your framework and your lens they recognized that one of the reasons they were so vulnerable is all the poor communities, very poor, um, and they were the drug runners and influenced by the crime lords, lived, were, were captured by the geography of Medellin, which is all the poor people were in the hills. The hills are very steep, and they were totally disconnected from the middle class and the economic activity on the valley floor. So they built a new kind of transportation mm -hmm. system that thought about connection and capacity, a metro that ran along the floor, and then gondolas that went up to the disconnected, like we do in ski resorts, those kind, literally gondolas, um, up to the disconnected communities. And at every gondola stop, they built a community center, a health clinic, so that the minute you got on or off, you were connected to resources that brought you in. Where the gondolas couldn't reach, they built escalators mm -hmm. into the hills so that they could connect those communities. Crime is down 90% in 11 years wow. in that city. And that's why it's my favorite example, because the communities are connected. They're incredibly resilient. There's enormous cohesiveness and trust. Uh, they've brought in, therefore, tremendous new business opportunities. It's become a magnet for tourism. They are yielding and reaping the resilience dividend. Wow. Yes. I'm, I'm really just 
delighted to be here to hear your, your talk. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi. Yeah. I'm very delighted to be here. And I'm curious about your relationship with Mr. Kim at the World Bank because of uh, they had a wonderful conference on desertification and uh, mind-blowing. And to me, you're, you're, you give a, a platform in addition to what they are doing, and, and this cooperation, I think, would be spectacular. Thank you. We have a prior connection. I was president of Penn when he was president of Dartmouth. Yes. So uh, we knew each other quite well and uh, are still working closely together. And the resilience building narrative is critical for them in two ways. One, they're a direct partner in 100 resilient cities. They are running creditworthiness workshops for the cities in the developing world that don't have a credit rating. Um, because this is a magnet for private investment. This is not only about what governments should be doing. This is a way for infrastructure and the like to bring in private capital. And so the IFC is working with us to create a fund for the developing world to build resilient infrastructure into these communities. So that's one way. But the second way is we are deeply immersed day by day right now in how to use the Ebola crisis to build more resilient health systems mm -hmm. in the developing world. That was an incredible demonstration of a lack of resilience. And it wasn't about money, because the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, Uganda, Senegal, all did way better with equally poor resources, because they had much more resilient health systems. So now. We want to take the crisis, and when all of the money is pouring in and all of the attention, rebuild it back resiliently and revitalize not only their health capacity, but their economic capacity. And we are joined at the hip in this. Melinda Gates said that one of the lessons of resilience from the Ebola crisis was making sure that each of the community clinics could shift and offer other types of services. What lessons do you learn there? Absolutely. So that is a resilience characteristic. You not only need diversity in your own capacity, but you need to be able to be diverse in what you're offering others so that you can adapt and be flexible. Um, the community health clinics have to do that, but they have to be integrated to the overall architecture of the health system. And that was part of the failure. Even when they knew something in some of these community health clinics, it didn't influence what the next one knew or what the next one did. And so often, infections spread that way because they weren't communicating in an effective way. We How have, does new technology help on that? New technology is so great. and We are so lucky. Look, we're the innovation capital of the world, and we have all of this technology. We certainly ought to be deploying it at home. So big data analytics allows us to integrate sources of information from any source and utilize it more effectively and more robustly. Uh, my friend John Chambers is always talking about the Internet of Things. Well, the Internet of Things is going to be about sensing mechanisms. That allows you to know in real time things that are going on and to self-regulate. For example, one of the capacities that needs to be developed in resilient systems is the ability to self-regulate and therefore to island a piece that's failing. So we saw, for example, in, in the Sandy situation that one bad generator in the Con Ed system took down all of lower Manhattan. With smart switching technology, you can island the piece that's failing immediately and not take down the rest of the system. That's building back 
a resilient system. Mm -hmm. You know, in the creation of the Internet, it was partly to be the most resilient communication system ever. And what it was done was just, as you're saying, it had no central hubs. It had no main switches. Every node of the Internet was equally able to store and forward packets so that if anything got taken out, it would just route around it. And to me, that's a metaphor for resilience in a networked age. Absolutely. And the counter metaphor is the 2008 financial crisis, in my mm -hmm. view. It was the representation of a completely interlocked, completely networked global financial system that was brittle. Mm -hmm. And so when one piece went wrong, it took the whole system down because there was no mechanism to island or, or de-network mm -hmm. from the piece that was causing the problems. Yes, ma'am, here and then. Yeah. This seems to be the uh, excited side of the room. But <laughs> that's because of how you have me facing, and yeah. I apologize, really. Yeah. I think that's a <laughs> geographic <laughs> issue. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, uh, I'm very excited about uh, uh, having this opportunity. Uh, for one thing, I'm uh, Manaz Afkami. I'm head of an organization that works in 40 countries with women, and most of them are developing and Muslim-majority countries. And we've been calling ourselves a learning organizations. We've been calling ourselves uh, flexible, participatory, adapting. But resilience is the terrific way of looking at it. My question, um, well, for one thing, my thanks for giving me a month in Bellagio this last mm -hmm. summer to finish, <laughs> to finish the work I'm doing on the experience of these women. But uh, what I wanted to ask you is this. We were talking about great disasters that are mostly physical, and I know you mentioned that physical disasters are not the only thing that need resilience. In the countries where we work, there are political extremist religious attacks, and they're largely focused on women. And they happen to be, in our experience, the ones who have shown the most resilience, both in the sense that you were describing of learning from their environment and adapting and being flexible, and also in bringing together families and communities. And are there any ways in which these people are, are not organized, such as government or other institutions? Are there ways that the uh, foundation, for instance, or your own work, uh, plans to help these types of disasters, which in some ways are longer lasting and more deeply rooted and more devastating. Uh, absolutely. So the, in the 100 Resilient Cities Challenge applications, we asked the cities to describe the four acute stresses they're most worried about and the four slower burning problems that are deeply concerning, but that don't hit with a single shock. And it is striking how many cities around the world, frankly, are talking about civil and political unrest, violence against women, inequality, racial inequality. We've had some very interesting ones from not to be named US cities in this round. Um, and so, this is absolutely fundamental to dealing with those kinds of issues. But you talk about the women doing, some of them doing well. And when I talk about leadership in the book, I talk about emergent leadership from the bottom up. It's not that the mayor or the president or whomever at the top isn't very important. But building the capacity in people and in communities to become leaders 
when things happen and before things happen, to, to galvanize their communities to do better and do things differently is really equally important, maybe more. Yes, sir, and then, sir, and then, then I'm going to switch over here. <laughs> yeah. My name is Joshua Sinai. I actually reviewed your book in the Washington Times two days ah. ago. <laughs> and I found it very interesting. Thank you. And I'm also uh, director of analytics at the Resilient Corporation, uh -huh. resilient.com, in Alexandria, Virginia. You stole Virginia. my name. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I, I've, I've been working on this since 2003. I know. I'm kidding. I know yeah. your work. <laughs> and um, our approach is a little different. Like a credit rating agency, we use big data analytics to score an organization or an agency's or a company's res um, resiliency rating. And we, 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 we come up with a, with a score. Mm -hmm. So we go about it in a very systematic way, which actually complements so. the work that you do, except we're focused more on the private sector right, right now. Thank yes. you. And Let's, it's very important work. Thank you. Good point. And back there, uh, the hand first, but I'll, I'm sorry, I'm trying to do them in order. I might, so many hands, I might let Judith do this so I don't get in trouble. Uh, thank you. Um, I work at Save the Children uh, here in D.C. and run our domestic government relations. And I, and I just have to say um, there's no more relevant topic both domestically, actually, in early childhood education, which we do, as well as emergency response. Mm -hmm. And so the, the relevancy of resiliency right now is, is so great with other metrics than traditional academic performance to see, particularly uh, for early The question has to do with um, part of what we're seeing in uh, trying to protect a vulnerable population, children, um, is that emergency management leaders want to talk about whole community response. And that's the catchword, and it makes sense um, that you don't have appendices for elderly and disabled and children and, and then it gets lost. But in our experience, a lot of times um, when resources are short, which frequently they are, um, they get lost in the shuffle. So do you have any advice for folks like us that want, we, we understand the um, principle of whole community response, but we, the pendulum has swung so far that way That's that good, it's, yeah, point. Yeah. it's hard. To us, whole community includes the poor and vulnerable, and we take a particular focus on that because we're the Rockefeller Foundation, and that is one of the aspects of our work from 101 years ago. So we are demonstrating that whole community vulnerability means the weakest link can take down the strongest in that community unless you're thinking about and building resilience into all of them. You will see in all of our work, and so I'd love you to really delve into it, building that capacity and taking that kind of framework. We think it's critical. I agree with you. Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. Uh, hi. Uh, th thank you for being here. Uh, um, I, it was very resonant and compelling to me uh, to hear you uh, raise the financial shock as an example of uh, uh, of, of not enough uh, resilience in the system. And in fact, uh, I would argue you could go back to the last three uh, business cycles and conclude that advanced economies, not just the US economy, are inadequately resilient to financial shocks. Uh, and I think this is <clears throat> an important and underappreciated concept. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about um, 
ways to uh, make the system more resilient. I'm not asking you to get into the weeds of you know, capital buffer ratios or anything like that. I'm more interested in kind of a, a 40,000 foot view. Uh, and, and because when I think about this idea of, for example, islanding, I think you called it, you know, putting, I, I have a hard time mapping that on to, to this sector. So I'd just be interested in your views on that. Maybe I can just mention quickly the five characteristics of resilience. So the first is awareness. I think what, the, what we're doing now in testing the credit level ratios and the amount of cash on hand and all of that is an effort for central banks to try to get greater awareness, both in their systems and in the banking system, about where there may be risk and vulnerability. And that is a good and important step. Um, the second is diversity. And there, I think, we're sorely lacking. I think that we have banks that all emulate and compete with one another, that we don't have a diverse enough banking system. We used to have much more robust community banks and other forms of banking. And with integration um, uh, and consolidation, we have lost some of that. So building a different kind of diverse and redundant capacity. Integration. I think we are integrating, but we're not sharing information. Transparency is a key feature, an important feature of integration. And when we have the kind of global competition that we do, we, we're doing the opposite. And I don't have an easy solution for that, but I, I do think that that's a risk. Mm. I don't think they're self-regulating, and they are highly unadaptive. And my fear is that in the effort to regulate bad behavior, we may unintentionally, and this goes back to another unintended consequence, make them less adaptive, less nimble, less flexible than is necessary in mm -hmm. order to keep the system resilient. That's what happened after the SNL crisis. Absolutely. We ended up not having the diversity. I think there was one more over here, and then we we'll go to the two. Yeah, yes, in the way back. Yeah. Hi, thank okay. you very much for a great um, discussion. I work with uh, foundations and corporations on their response to disasters, and I'd like to learn more about what you're expecting cities to do with your grant, and what is your strategy long-term for those cities? How do you expect them to sustain their activities once your granting is over? Um, so what we are doing by the book what we expect to uh, do, it's very straightforward, and thank you for asking. Every city is getting a new role called a chief resilience officer. That person we will pay for. He or she, has, they have to agree that that person reports to the mayor and ha or the chief executive and has both the mayor's authority and the kind of political skills to integrate across all sectors. So first, to integrate all the units of government, and secondly, to integrate across all sectors, the private sector, civil society, um, community leadership, and the like. And that is really critical. We had our first 27 global CROs meet in New Orleans a few weeks ago, and it was pretty amazing. Um, to see them, and I was particularly touched by how much they were learning from each other, but in one conversation, seeing 
the Chief Resilience Officer of Ramallah, Palestine, sitting with the Chief Resilience Officer of Eshkelon, Israel. So I think there's going to be a lot of common spirit around this notion of building resilience. That's a beautiful image, It is by beautiful. The way. And Especially it was Especially in New Orleans, yeah. uh, where they could like yeah. bond. It was it was incredible. So they get a chief resilience officer. They're part of this learning network. But then they get access to a platform of goods and services that we've put together for our cities. And what's been amazing to us is the outpouring of both private companies and public institutions that want to be on the platform and available to the cities. So I mentioned Palantir when I talked about big data analytics. They're doing pro bono big data analytics dashboards for the cities. Swiss Re is doing catastrophe mapping for the cities and will create a municipal catastrophe bond for the network. Our own U.S. Sandia National Laboratories is now at work in Norfolk, Virginia, doing some of their risk mapping for them. We see a big French construction company, Veolia, uh, coming onto the platform and offering really interesting construction and engineering ideas. So there's almost a billion dollars of goods and services already on this platform for the cities, it will build their capacity. So our goal is to give them the knowledge and the resources so that when our funding, which is really quite minimal, just paying for the strategy work and the chief resilience officer, but when our funding is over, they will have access, continuing access, to the platform, which we will keep going. They will have continuing access to the network, which we will keep going. And a positive unintended consequence, because we've talked about bad ones in other decisions, is we are already seeing the chief resilience officers and the mayors proselytizing to others. So the first, all the citizens get together in what we call an agenda setting workshop after they win um, the challenge. And in the Biblos Lebanon agenda setting workshop, the mayor had invited the mayors of Tripoli, Lebanon, and Tripoli. <laughs> They, he had invited the general of the army and the general of the navy. So he saw his role already as sort of getting more people into this resilience building framework. Hmm. And we think that's phenomenal. Yes, ma'am. And yes, ma'am. The, the two here have been. You've, talk, you've yeah. talked about some very acute uh, crises, Sandy Hook and um, uh, uh, Louisiana. What about the chronic ones like Detroit? And why Detroit. don't you pass the microphone? Detroit. The chronic, the the chronic to the ability to right. withstand. Um, is it there? Can it be rebuilt? Will it be rebuilt? Just from a psychological resilience, much less economic one. Um, well, the Detroit story is, is yet to be written. I think that we're seeing a lot of innovation going on there. I'm so proud of my colleague foundations for buying the art collection and turning the money back to uh, restore the pension fund that's really innovative for a foundation group to be doing. Uh, I see in Detroit a lot of seeds that we saw in New Orleans. That is, young entrepreneurs attracted to the city, real thought about opportunity, communities feeling that they can do it. Um, Rick Snyder is a very good governor, and he really gets it, and I think they 
they have an amazing chance, and all of us are helping, and all of us are rooting for them. But there are skills that need to be developed in those communities, and that's what this work is about. Going back to your visit to uh, Congress, um, <laughs> I began thinking about how how to deploy resilient systems with a Congress that has to prioritize fundraising and re-election. Well, my husband's just written, he's the chairman of the Administrative Conference of the United States and has just written an article yesterday, I think, that I saw talking about building a more resilient government, that we cannot diminish our government if we're really thinking about resilience. Maybe you want to answer the question, Paul. <laughs> Paul will be here afterwards. Right. I'll sign my... But it's critical. There's no question. Mm. Yes, sir. <laughs> We had these natural disasters, and we have terrorism, things like that. So take something like Ferguson. I mean, what, what would you suggest as a proactive mitigating resiliency uh, strategy? And uh, this will be our last question. It's a good one for you to just wrap up the whole Definitely. idea of how you prepare to be a resilient place. Exactly. So for us, resilience is about four R's, readiness, recovery, revitalization, and then return, the resilience dividend. Readiness is what Ferguson and the greater Missouri area did not have. And so how they now use this crisis to figure out how to get ready for any crisis, it is likely, as that area knows, that their next crisis is going to be a tornado or a storm and not civil unrest. And so we are having deep conversations with them about the readiness piece of this. But right now, they are in the recovery phase. And it is acute, and it is emotional. And the question of whether they can revitalize the third phase of resilience from this recovery, again, I think, like Detroit, is a story still to be written. The theme of this book is that the most important thing is build, building bonds of trust that come from communicating, from the three, four R's that you talked about. And this has really been a theme of your career, whether it's been at the University of Pennsylvania or Rockefeller. We at the Aspen Institute are deeply proud that, you know, every now and then you have an idea, such as the diaspora program. We can help countries around the world by working with their diaspora and helping them do entrepreneurship back. And we get to be involved We'd love to be involved, too, with the Resilient Cities program. We hope to do it in the Middle East, as we were talking mm -hmm. about just a moment ago. But mainly, I just want to thank you and really urge you all to read the book, meet Judith afterwards, and say thank you to Judith Roden for thank being here. Thank you for here. being here. That was Judith Roden and Walter Isaacson, recorded live in Washington on November twentieth, 2014, for the Alma and Joseph Gildenhorn book series. You can discover more about our programs at our website, aspeninstitute.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. You can follow us on Twitter at Aspen Institute and at Facebook slash Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.